the pre-rut, they're basically in bachelor groups. It's a time where they're testing out each other's dominance. You may see some light sparring, and that's just, it's kind of like you and I arm wrestling, you know, we're just kind of, you know, feeling good, just kind of feeling each other out, how strong each other is, and uh, and things like that. So they'll... I think I'd win. You probably would. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, New Mexico. James Pittman here with another edition of the New Mexico Wildlife Podcast. Well, deer season is currently well underway, and we wanted to have an episode that focused on how deer populations are managed here in New Mexico. So to help us with that, we have Oren DeBouvier, the state deer biologist, joining us today. Oren, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, James. I'm excited. Yeah, should be should be a good time. Well, Oren, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where Where are you from originally? So I grew up in West Virginia, um, and after I graduated high school, I went to Ohio State. Uh, grew up hunting and fishing with my dad and grandpa back in the, the eastern states. And um, yeah, after high school, uh, got my undergrad at Ohio State in wildlife management. After I graduated from there in 2007, I moved out to Colorado and bounced around as a wildlife technician for about uh, uh, four years, and then. After I was a wildlife technician, I got my master's at Utah State, and then after getting my master's, I went to Washington to be a wildlife biologist up there, and then uh, now I'm in New Mexico. Nice. Nice. How, how long have you been on with uh, New Mexico Game and Fish? So I've been here for just about six years. It'll be six years in January. Cool. And and your position is the state deer biologist, right? Yep, Exactly. Okay, so tell us just a quick overview, the 30,000-foot view of what you do as the state deer biologist. So as a state deer biologist, I uh, am in charge of collecting and analyzing data relating to the management of deer uh, and their habitats to meet the department's needs and goals and objectives. Um, this involves collecting, compiling, and analyzing biological data obtained from aerial surveys, estimating population sizes and trends across the state and then I evaluate those uh, deer population data to make harvest recommendations to the state game commission and then day to day I provide customer service to our constituents folks might call in asking what the deer population is like in this area they might want to know where they might go deer hunting where they might find deer in a specific unit and things of those nature and then just uh, another part of my position is I supervise the regional wildlife biologists throughout the state. And then um, lastly, collaborate with other state deer biologists in the West to coordinate um, management objectives, identify management needs and concerns, and then coordinate efforts to address those needs. Nice. Sounds like a pretty diverse job. Yeah, yeah, it's a blast. Well, along the lines of deer and deer management so let's let's kind of dive into that so first off tell us about the different species and subspecies of deer that we have here in the state of new mexico so in new mexico we have two species of deer the mule deer and the white-tailed deer Um, within those two species each has two subspecies so we have with mule deer specifically we have rocky mountain mule deer and desert mule deer and then with whitetail, we have the eastern whitetail deer and the cow's whitetail deer. Okay. Okay, so so how are these different species and subspecies different? Like the differences in where they're found and sort of overall differences in the species and their habitat needs and things like that? Yeah, so um, between species, uh, mule deer have uh, a white rump, uh, a rope-like tail, their antler formation is a little bit different than white-tailed deer. The antler formation of mule deer is uh, bifurcated antlers, meaning that uh, they branch once and then they branch again. That's for mule deer. For white-tailed deer, all the tines come off of a, a single main beam, and, and so there's not that bifurcated branching like you'll see with a typical mule deer rack. Uh, white-tailed deer have uh, a, a large white tail that most hunters see, including myself as deer are fleeing away from me after I make a, a boneheaded move for them. Um, but then within species, for mule deer, there's not much physical difference between 
Rocky Mountain mule deer and desert mule deer, the Rockies might be a little bigger in body size, um, but in general, their appearance is similar, just a little bit larger. Geographically located in the state, I kind of think of I-40 as the, the break between where Rockies are found versus deserts, but that's not that's not hard and fast. Um, the the It's more of a gradient, you know, like uh, say I-40 in the Sandias or Manzanos, uh, the mule deer in there might be more similar to the Rocky Mountain mule deer in those mountains, whereas in the foothills or just south of those mountains, it might start gradiating into desert mule deer. So it's it's again not hard and fast. It just it's more of a gradient based on terrain and um, latitude, basically within the state. White-tailed deer, there is a harder boundary. So the eastern white-tailed deer are are uh, found on the eastern part of the state. Um, there are some reports from the Sandias that some white-tailed deer have been spotted in there, and, and we've been getting increased reports recently. Those are likely eastern white-tailed deer that have moved up drainages or moved across ag fields and things of that nature that have, have set up shop in the foothills of the Sandias. For the cows white-tailed deer, um, those are generally found in the southwest part of the state. Think of units 25, 6, and 7. Uh, unit 1621. And where where else are the the cows deer found? Yeah, so um, the the geographic distribution of cows white tailed deer is um, again southern southwestern New Mexico, uh, southern Arizona, and then down in through Mexico. And so that's kind of the yeah the geographical distribution of them their 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 general range. Very cool. So we'll pretty much have deer. All throughout the state. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell folks uh, you can see you can see deer really anywhere in any habitat in the state. Um, you can see them in the the low desert areas or all the way up at thirteen thousand feet on Wheeler Peak and, and anywhere in between. It, it's really just wherever now. There's obviously places where they're more inclined to be and where the densities may be greater. But I'm not shocked to find deer at anywhere in the state that I happen to be. Very cool. Well, let's talk about deer in general and sort of walk through a typical year in the life of a deer. So let's start with the breeding season. So when is the breeding season for deer in New Mexico? And and does that vary by the different species and subspecies and and geographic locations? It does. Yeah, it does vary uh, exactly like you said. So the Rocky Mountain mule deer they tend to have a more well-defined breeding period that's um, typically late November through mid-December is their breeding period. As you get further south and it starts becoming desert mule deer, that breeding period is extended and less well-defined. They can breed anywhere from mid-December all the way through early February, with the peak of the breeding occurring sometime early to mid-January, but but that extended breeding season occurs for the desert mule deer. And there is a biological reason for those those breeding periods and the differences in breeding periods between the two. Um, and I'll go into that here in a second, but to address the whitetail portion, I, it's pretty much the same. Um, there is a more well-defined breeding period for the eastern white-tailed deer. And for the cow's white-tailed deer, there's a, a more expanded or extended breeding period. So um, the biological reasoning between those different breeding strategies or breeding periods for the northern species, the the rocky mule deer and the eastern white-tailed deer, they really need to have uh, a more defined breeding season so that way they can get fawns on the ground in a timely manner so that way those fawns reach a good weight or good nutrition and obtain good fat reserves before the next winter, their first winter as a fawn, um, so they can survive that winter. When it comes to desert mule deer, the, the extended breeding period is so that way some doe in the population somewhere is likely to have a fawn at an opportune time. So as we know in the southern part of the state, the um, the seasonal rains are very sporadic. The monsoons may be delayed. They may be very localized in some areas. And so 
by the the desert deer having an extended breeding period um it just increases that general population's chance of putting fawns on the ground in a time that coincides with when those seasonal rains come and that's the time when the nutritional demand on the does is greatest and so as the rains come spring green up comes or the summer green up comes those does are able to get that nutrition that they need as the fawns are weaning and it just again just just increases the chances that some fawns will survive through that nursing and weaning period nice that's that's really interesting so along those lines of the rut a lot of hunters break that down talking about pre-rut the rut post-rut can you kind of talk about what they mean by that and what those different period what's going on with the deer in those different periods sure so um the pre-rut um we'll, we'll kind of think of it as like late summer early fall period in which the bucks are in bachelor groups they may or may not have their velvet they may just be rubbing off their velvet uh during the pre-rut but the pre-rut they're basically in bachelor groups not really thinking about does they're mostly trying to put on fat reserves for the upcoming rut uh, so they can chase the does and they're they're it's a time where they're testing out each other's dominance and getting a hierarchy for the upcoming breeding period and it's all about breeding rights and you might see bucks when they're in velvet they might be pawing at each other standing on their hind legs and and kind of slapping at each other with their front hooves or they may once they rub off their velvet you may see some light sparring and that's just it's kind of like you and i arm wrestling you know we're just kind of just you know feeling good just kind of getting feeling each other out how strong each other is and uh and things like that so they'll i think i'd win you probably would (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's just it's just a time in which they're they're learning each other's strengths and weaknesses and and that's all you know partly because some testosterone is flowing and then and then in preparation for the upcoming rut or, or breeding period nice so the next thing that you asked about was was with the rut and that's uh later in the fall again we, we already talked about uh the breeding periods um and that's the rut is defined as the time in which the does are actively being bred and so at this time you may see bucks chasing does um you won't see the bachelor groups as much they will have broken up by then or if they're together they're a lot more aggressive toward each other you might see like all out like knockdown drag out type fights um and that's for dominance and, and breeding rights specifically so at this time during the rut and this is both what i've described so far with pre-rut and rut is the general trends for both whitetail and mule deer what you'll see during the rut is you'll see the bucks going around and scent checking does they'll be nuzzling and smelling their hind ends they'll be kind of licking the air sometimes you'll see a doe urinate on the ground and the buck will kind of take that urine in their mouth and kind of taste it and curl their lips up a little bit and that's just a test if that doe is ready to breed or not and that that kind of helps him get ready helps him time his readiness to breed to coincide with when that specific doe is ready to breed so when a doe is is ready to breed um, she'll then allow a buck to mount her and at that point you know he'll physically breed her Uh, he'll mount her several times within a couple of day period before he moves on the does are usually receptive to breeding for 24 to 36 hours so you'll see her bred several times and while he's trying to breed her you know he's the dominant buck that or the buck that she chose to be bred by you'll also see other bucks trying to come in it's you'll see a lot of bucks just really harassing this this breeder buck uh trying to trying to get in on the action and and that'll happen with that doe for again that that period of time and then he'll move on to find another one and and there's usually more than just one in a general area that's that's coming in so you'll see kind of a frenzy i guess now there won't necessarily always be two or three does that that buck is specifically trying to tend but he might be trying to tend a doe while this other doe's ready and a subdominant buck may get his chance to breed at her um not a herd situation like elk no no it's not it's it's um it's a lot more one-on-one i guess than than what elk are so the the timing of the rut 
is greatly influenced by the photo period. Um, as daylight time decreases and nighttime increases, they have some glands in their eyes, yeah, right behind their eyes, that releases more melatonin that then just signals some physiological changes and, and increases hormone or testosterone production, which then gets them ready to breed. So um, really the, the time in which the breeding occurs is influenced by that photo period. Besides the extended breeding period I talked about with the deserts, and, and if you probably followed a doe each year, she would probably come in about the same time each year. But it's generally consistent year to year because it is photo period influenced. And so uh, a lot of folks will say, well, it's hot this year. The bucks just aren't breeding. Uh, I have even said it myself, but as I learn more about deer biology, they are breeding. They're just doing it on a less noticeable scale. It might be at nighttime, or they might wait until, say, the weather breaks till you really see a lot more increased activity. So the weather influences the activities you see because it influences how comfortable it is for those deer to move around and be pushed around. Um, another thing that, that's super interesting to me about the reproductive cycle or reproduction of deer is regardless of the number of bucks in the population, regardless of the age structure of bucks in the population, 95% or better of the does are bred every year. And that's, you hear folks say, or, or I've even said it myself, oh, she's a, a barren doe, she's a dried up doe she doesn't reproduce anymore. Well, that's, that's not true, uh, with deer. They will actually, you know, they'll breed throughout their life. Now they might not produce as many fawns each year, but they'll still be bred every year. And somewhere around 1500 does that they tested eight years or better. Again, 95% or better were pregnant. And then of those that were pregnant, I think they averaged 1.67 fetuses. I don't remember what that study is off the top of my head, but uh, but that's the general uh, the general trend of those older does. And, and then what about the younger does? What at what age do they start breeding? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in general, we'll, we'll talk about mule deer. Uh, whitetails follow a similar trend in New Mexico. They uh, they don't generally breed on their their first year they just don't reach reproductive status they don't get enough nutrition to breed as a fawn um, that may be different on deer that are on high nutrition areas in the northern part of the state but in the southern part of the state they generally don't attain breeding status as a fawn as a yearling so one and a half year old doe it's still pretty rare in the southern part of the state to see does with fawns at heel uh, the northern part of the state might be a little more common, but in the southern part of the state, it's a little more rare. So kind of that two-and-a-half-year age then? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thanks. Um, nice. Yeah. So then what about after the rut? So the rut's over. We've got the rest of the winter and, and spring ahead. What are the bucks and does doing at this time? Yeah, after the rut, it's all about recovering, uh, especially for the bucks. They're beat up from their fights, uh, chasing does. They're they're on a uh, a mission to obtain as much nutrients and calories as they can to to put on some fat for the upcoming winter. Especially in the north, where we get heavier snows, you know they're they're at the grocery store at the feed bag all day long, so that way they can survive that those heavy snow periods. Um, and then same in the south, but they don't have to compete with the heavy snows. So in the north, during that time when they're trying to feed and put on weight, they're really on browse. So like oak brush, um, you know, things of that nature, just the shrub component of the, of the habitat is what they're really eating on to get those fat reserves. In the south, however, they're getting their fat reserves from winter rains, typically in the south, or winter moisture that, that produces some good forb growth. And so those uh, deer in the south are able to get on those hit that hit that new forb growth and put on the the pounds from there does doing the same thing they're trying to put on those fat reserves for the upcoming winter and survive so that way they can get or drop heavy fawns and healthy fawns and then get them weaned you're talking about deer browse so so deer are more browsers than than other species like Mm -hmm. like elk for example yeah yeah uh, 100 percent. so you might see deer eating in a golf course and people would think well they're just eating grass they're grazing on grass that's that's not it they're they're eating uh, the forbs that are growing there and so by forbs i mean like the weedy 
the things we would think of as weeds, the broadleafed uh, plants that, that we would typically call a weed or a flower or something. So those deer, they're on the forbs if they're in like on a golf course or something of that nature that's green and you think they're eating grass, they're on the forbs. But in general, their diet is comprised mostly of browse throughout most of the year. And by browse, we're talking the shrubs, oak brush, um, mesquite in some areas. I've seen them eating in, in their studies of them eating uh, pinion boughs, you know, the ends of the new growth on pinion trees and, and things of that nature. So they're really just eating that year's winter's growth on on those shrubs, on those trees. Uh, aspens are another desired browse for deer. Okay. Okay. Well then moving on from, from the recovery period, let's move into talking about the, the fawning season and, uh, and kind of what's going on in a deer's life then. Yeah. So the fawning season is all, uh, dictated by when they're when they breed and the the fawning season in the northern part of the state is typically focused around that uh late june early july period um and you'll you'll start seeing a lot more hitting the ground during that time frame in the southern part of the state you'll see it's a more extended fawning period the average is early to mid-august but that's the average they can be on the ground anywhere from say like mid-july through september and i've even had reports of fawns on the ground that are five days old at the end of September, beginning wow. of October. And that's from, um, some, like a rehab center who, who received a, a newborn fawn whose doe was hit by a car. So it can really be just extended based on where they are. Wow. What is it? Is it mainly a, a solitary event or those does in groups or are they off by themselves typically? So, so when they go, when they actually drop their fawn they'll leave the group and go off by themselves and drop the fawn they'll nurse it for a few days till the the fawn's able to get on its feet and kind of travel and then they'll start start slowly making their way back with groups but but the actual birthing time when when they give the birth is, is solitary leading up to that they'll be in doe groups uh you know five six does at a time maybe a half or maybe a dozen with with mule deer, I think it's really cool. They typically stay in family groups, so the grandmother and the mother and the daughter. You know, they typically travel together, uh, and you know, then when they drop their fawns and go up by themselves, but in general, follow each other. And there there is a kind of like elk has a you know a herd cow. The mule deer will have a lead doe that kind of shows the other does the ways of you know what she's learned or what's been passed down to her. What what about the bucks at this point? What are what are they doing? They are so we're we're talking winter, late winter through summer basically. So they'll be solitary late winter as they're putting on their fat reserves or, or just trying to survive the winter. Maybe a couple of bucks here and there together. As spring comes along, they're starting to get through winter. There's uh, more more forage maybe on the ground. They'll start coming back into those bachelor groups and. You know, you might see four or five bucks together. Not usually a dozen, unless it's just some real high quality food area. But, but uh, you know, they tend to have smaller groups, and there'll be three, four, five bucks together. But completely separate from the does at this point. Yeah, yeah. Now it might be in the same like home ranges may overlap uh, in some instances, or the bucks may just have completely separate home ranges. But you you rarely see mixed groups at this point you might see a young forky uh or a young yearling buck that's in with the does but in general those those older bucks are typically wanting to hang out by themselves and aren't, aren't with the does okay okay well we'll kind of back to that doe group and that doe that's going off to to fawn how many fawns can a doe have in a year so there's there's one fawning period a doe will only drop once within a, a, a calendar year but she may have three it's probably happened and i'm sure there's reports of it i don't know off the top of my head there may be in high high nutrition areas those that have had four probably has happened in the whitetail world back east in general an average number of fawns uh, or fetuses that does carry is around that 1.8 to 2 range and that's that's if they're in great body condition so 
the number of funds that they have is all related to what their body condition is like and their body condition the previous year. So it can be anywhere from one to two, sometimes three. I've heard of three, like in the Chama area or triplets, but uh, they'll typically just have that one or two. In the South, usually just one. Okay. And then during this time period, so these fawns would be pretty vulnerable, right? So what are what are the main predators that are after these deer fawns at this point? Yeah, they're they're incredibly vulnerable. Their their strategy for surviving those first couple weeks is to hide. They're they're hiding neonates or hiding, you know, fawns and they're real wobbly legs. They can't bound away real well. Uh, so they are vulnerable and they just they just hide. They don't have a whole lot of scent on them so that these these predators can't find them. Just just one of their couple other survival strategies. But the main predators of fawns are, are generally coyotes and then maybe some bobcats and then bears, you know, opportunistically will will grab them. Uh, bears don't hit the fawns. Now they would hit them, but they don't typically hit them as hard as say like they would elk calves in some areas. Um but but coyotes are good like coursing predators and they're good at searching out those habitats where those fawns are hiding and and they take quite a few fawns. Okay. Okay, so the does have had their fawns and we've kind of moved out of that fawning period. So what are deer doing the rest of the year from post fawning back up to that pre rut period we've already talked about? Yeah, so so now we're getting back into the the packing on pounds for the bucks. Uh, you know, they in the northern part of the state survive the winter. Their their fat stores are low, so they're trying to put their their fat back on so they can breed again next year. The does when they're when they're rearing those fawns, that's a period of greatest nutritional stress for those does, and they're trying to stay in areas of high nutrition. They're trying to just pack on the pounds or, or eat as much they can't really pack on the pounds at this point because as soon as they put it on those fawns are taking it out through their milk um, but they're staying in areas that that has high nutrition but also good hiding cover for their fawns or good escape cover for their fawns and it's, it's all about just just getting those groceries and getting that nutrition back into them so that way they can raise this healthy fawn to weaning okay all right well so we we kind of talked about predators of the fawns but what about those adult deer do they have predatory risks throughout the year yeah they do so mountain lions are a major predator of adult deer they're they're the ones that takes probably most adult deer and every day of their life whether they're a fawn or adult they're at risk of predation but i would say that does are probably at greater risk of predation at the time in which they're trying to wean those fawns because they're kind of stuck to an area where those fawns are and you know maybe more visible as they move to and from where that fawn is so it can nurse and plus their fat reserves are lower and their energy stores are lower so they're less fit at that moment to to escape the predators the bucks they're probably most at risk after after they after the breeding period when they're the weakest and then before or during those periods of heavy snowfall well so let's switch gears just a little bit and kind of dive into your job a little more so let's kind of talk about how these deer populations and deer trends are are actually monitored so i know you do annual deer surveys so so how are those conducted and what data are you collecting yeah, so annually we, f- we fly aerial surveys throughout the state for deer. And during those surveys, we're collecting trends in population uh, and composition ratios. And by composition ratios, I mean buck-to-deer ratios and fawn-to-deer ratios. And that helps us determine, fawn-to-deer ratios helps us determine the reproductive success of that herd in that area. Buck-to-deer ratios allows us to estimate the... Uh, harvestable surplus basically so with our aerial surveys we've we've selected gmus throughout the state that are representative for that area for instance a couple gmus in the northwest part of the state a couple in the northeast southwest and southeast um, that that kind of represent those surrounding it We, we we can't fly everywhere we'd like to uh, but time constraints and budget constraints 
limit what we can fly and, and how much. So when we're flying, we're it's a double observer type survey, and we can go into that if you wish here in a few minutes of how, how that is. But, but there's two people in the helicopter, and we're flying transects that are predetermined, and we're looking out and counting the number of deer that we see out of the side of the helicopter. Once we count the total, then we'll come back around and get the classifications of them. Okay, yeah, so a couple of follow-ups on that. So you had mentioned the double observer setup. So let's kind of talk about why you do that. And then the other question I had was about the timing of surveys, when those are flown and, and why they're flown during that time. Sure. So the double observer survey, it, it's it's called a capture-recapture framework survey. Um, and And so we have... Me as the primary, and I have a secondary in the back. We're looking out of the same side of the helicopter. We're not we're not talking to each other when we see the group until the helicopter passes it. Once it passes it, I'll say, "Hey, did you see that group?" Or the person behind me. If I miss it, they'll say, "Hey, did you see that?" And then we'll go back around. and And I record when we record the data. We record which seat sees it, or if we both see it. That allows us to to estimate, use statistical modeling to estimate uh, the population based on the area flown and the available area to deer in that area or in that GMU. So the way that works without without trying to nerd out too much is it's basically like it was developed, this mark recapture was developed in the fish world. And basically think of if you're wanting to survey a lake and you take a net and you drag it through a lake and you catch there's an unknown number of fish in that lake say you catch 500 fish and then you mark them each individually up to 500 throw them back in a week later you come back drag that net again this time you catch 750 fish of those 750 maybe 400 are unmarked so you know the ratio that were marked last week and you know the ratio that you caught that were marked this week plus the number of unmarked fish that you caught and you're able to do some some stats and and estimate okay based on the ratio of marked versus unmarked fish that we caught in the second attempt and the area that we dragged or the time that we we dragged the area we estimate that the population is this much so it's basically the same with deer like in the front seat i'm the first net quote unquote in the second seat they're the second net so like i'm one capture period and they're the second capture period so uh, i might quote unquote mark the first year and they may or may not see it the second one and then we can come back and, and plug it into our our models and estimate how many might be on the landscape in that area so the second part of your question was when do we fly and why do we fly at that specific period we fly generally early to mid december uh and that's throughout the state we selected that time period because it's uh, after most deer hunts are, are finished, so it's a post-hunt composition estimate um, and, and population estimate. Also, we fly at that time because that's a time in which the bucks and do- buck and doe groups are generally together or close together. Uh, so that way, you know, if we flew September before the bucks get close to the does, we may see a hundred does and two bucks. Whereas in real, realistically, there'd be you know, if we flew in there together, same area, same or later in the year, get the same number of does, but yet we see more bucks because they've now moved toward that doe group. So we're we're getting the post hunt estimate with with the composition ratios when those bucks and does are most visible and together. I would like to fly later in the south, southern part of the state, because of that that extended breeding period. Uh, we're generally just a touch early in the southern part of the state for all of the bucks and you know, for there to be mixed groups, but we have January archery hunts in the southern part of the state, and so as not to fly over archery hunters, we we keep with that December time period. Okay, okay, and and you've kind of touched on this throughout what you were saying there, but how how are population estimates determined, and then how is that used to set the harvest limits? And what, what does harvest data, because, right, you collect harvest data. So how does that come into play in all of this? Yeah, so with those surveys, uh, as you mentioned, uh, with those population estimates, we were able to look at the trends in the population over time or over, over a few-year period and, and find out 
uh, are the are the population numbers of indices increasing or decreasing based on based on what we see and what we count from those surveys. If it's increasing, um, it, it generally means we may be able to give more tags in that area, or, or there may be a, a larger, greater harvestable surplus of bucks in that area, so we can get more hunters on the landscape. Conversely, if it's decreasing, we may reduce tags. And then the, the harvest data aspect of it. So obviously we ask for harvest reports are mandatory in New Mexico each year after the hunt. Did you hunt? Did you harvest? And that those trends in the harvest success rates are, are also used. So those two pieces of information are used to determine how many tags we may give out or, or whether we're going to increase or decrease tags for that unit or that area. So if survey data indicates that population is stable or increasing uh, based on indices or raw counts um, and success rates are, are maintaining, we may increase tags. Uh, if survey data indicates that it's decreasing, but success rates staying the same, we may decrease tags. But survey data, you know, for whatever reason, we don't fly an area that received good moisture. We fly an area that, for whatever uh, climatic event, doesn't capture the deer in that area that year or whatever. But our harvest data is showing that success rates are stable or they'll stable will keep tags the same but if it shows that success rates are, are increasing to us that indicates that you know like say there's a three or four year period where success rates are on a an increasing trend um that indicates to us that all things being equal hunter effort being equal that that population is increasing there's more bucks on the landscape able to be harvested uh, by hunters and so we may throw a few more tags in that unit to, to allow more hunting opportunity. And we also have thresholds and you can see it on our website. And then when we open up our role here um, in 2022, that information, you know, we can talk about it more than two in public meetings and stuff, but we also have thresholds for, for each unit. And I know there's some questions about uh, unit types, quality versus standard type units. And we'll talk about those when you're ready, but, but we do have some thresholds for success rates based on those unit types. And if it's if our harvest success rates are above those thresholds, again, indicates that there's enough bucks that we can probably put some more tags on that landscape and, and get some more hunting opportunity out there. You had mentioned um, in your answer there talking about quality hunts, high demand hunts, and that kind of thing. So let's let's kind of move into hunt structure and and hunting opportunities across the state for deer yeah um quality hunts those are those are commission that de uh, designated so those are set and rule um and and basically a quality hunt is a hunt that's designed to provide hunters with some combination of the following attributes it either be lower hunter density per the hunt unit or the hunt itself an increased opportunity of success because of the bucks available on the landscape it might give the hunter an ability to select from a wider range of legal animals so it might be in an area where um, harvest has been low and so there might be a more even age structure of bucks they might have a chance a better chance at you know a seven year old seven and a half year old buck as opposed to what i'll talk about men at the standard hunts um or it provides a, a quality hunt provides a season structure where the timing or length of that hunt provides a more pleasurable hunting experience for our sportsmen and women. Standard hunts, I'll get to that in a second, but the high demand hunts are calculated. Those are not set by the commission. Those are calculated each year for both deer and elk. And a high demand hunt is a hunt where for the preceding two years, greater than 22% of the applicants were, or applications were by non-residents. So say we had 100 tags, or 100 applications for a specific hunt in a unit, 22% of those applications were from non-residents this year, 22% or greater were for applications were from non-residents last year. That's how we call it a high demand hunt, meaning that it's in high demand for non-residents, basically. And that really only affects our fee that, that's charged for the non-residents. It doesn't affect residents of New Mexico. And then the standard hunt, those hunts, uh, 
are designed to provide applicants with a higher chance of drawing a hunting license. These units or these hunts are generally managed to maximize annual hunter opportunity without negative impacts to the overall population. And because we give more tags out in these standard hunts, or there may be more tags in these standard hunts, harvest may be a little higher, the buck age structure may be a little lower, but it gives a, it gives hunters a chance to get out there on the landscape. Sure, sure. Well, so within that, within all of those hunt types, standard, high demand, quality, pretty much your your bag limit's the same, right? It's it's a, a fork and antler deer. Sometimes it's specific to fork and antler mule deer or fork and antler whitetail. But looking through the list of hunts, there are a few antlerless hunts. So can you tell us why doe hunting is allowed in in some areas and, and why those hunts were, were set up that way? Yeah, there, those antlerless hunts were set up in areas where there was some sort of a, a human-wildlife conflict. It's just you know an, an interaction where... Uh, those deer are less desirable in that area for whatever reason um, than other parts of the state. So specifically, we have a couple antlerless hunts around Roswell, and we have uh, Silver City antlerless hunt. But those those hunts are designed to provide a hunting opportunity while addressing that, that management concern or conflict issue just to decrease the population. There may be deer that are hitting an ag field, uh, where we've had a lot of landowner depredation complaints because deer eating, you know, their alfalfa that they're trying to grow for their cattle. Uh, Silver City, it might be deer eating ornamental shrubs or causing um, vehicle collisions within the town limits or just just being a general nuisance um, to the residents of that city. Just, just may be desired in lower numbers than what they are currently found. So by having this antlerless harvest, we're able to, again, provide that hunting opportunity, but also address uh, or, or harvest the segment of our population that's that influences population growth the most. So does are the drivers of population growth. They, they, you know, they make the fawns, they raise the fawns uh, year in, year out. And so when, you, when you're able to hit that segment, you're... you're knocking back your population are able to knock it back a little bit we don't we have those in those areas specifically because of those conflicts and we don't have antlerless harvest in throughout other parts of the state because our dry climate just doesn't allow for a surplus of does to be harvested without putting our populations on a negative trajectory okay but but harvesting a certain number of bucks per year doesn't really affect population trajectory then no it doesn't at all the, the population trajectory uh as, as i mentioned earlier population trajectory is not influenced by buck harvest because unless you fall below 10 bucks per 100 does 95 percent of the does or greater are being bred every year so you could have you can have one buck siring or, or, or breeding with 10 12 does and as long as there's enough bucks to hit those does or get uh, breed with those does when they're in, um, and, and unless you get beneath that 10 bucks per hundred does threshold, there is. As long as there's enough bucks to do that, those does will, will be bred with, uh, or will carry fawns, basically. Okay. Okay, well, well then along those lines of talking about permits that are that are a little different than the standard permits let's talk a little bit about enhancement hunts there's there's a lot of different types of hunts some of them are draws some of them are are raffles so what is the purpose of those hunts having them outside of the uh the regular draw and and where where does the money from from those tags go yeah so um these enhancement hunts were, were designed to raise extra money for game protection type activities for, for wildlife uh, management type activities. And so we have these enhancement hunts that are available either through the, a raffle for deer through the Mule Deer Foundation that happens in June. Uh, we also have auction tags that are raffled off at the Mule Deer Foundation banquet in Salt Lake City, usually in February. Uh, the money raised for from those two efforts 
Um, they go to our game protection fund, which then funds our habitat improvement projects. It helps with maybe our research projects, helps, helps fund those, and it helps, helps maybe fund our surveys, um, things of that nature. And we're able to leverage, uh, it's pretty, pretty sweet, back in the mid-1900s, uh, the Pittman-Robertson Act was passed. Uh, which is an excise tax on our hunting and or firearm and ammo, firearms and ammo, and hunting equipment. And that PR dollars goes to each state to help with this game protection stuff. Well, to get back to your question about the enhancement hunts, we're able to leverage the funds that are raised from this uh, these raffle and auction tags against our PR dollars and get a three to one match. And just basically make our dollar make that dollar go further, and, and it funds our habitat improvements. Uh, maybe a prescribed burn, it may be a lop and scatter or mastication effort to increase shrub growth for we're talking deer, so increase shrub growth for uh, deer population health and growth. So yeah, it just it just funds a whole host of, of activities that that improves or and benefits the deer populations in our state. Well, for somebody that might be listening to this that doesn't know that we have that raffle going on give us a little information about when that occurs and where they could find more information yeah so the raffle uh, tags are bought through colleen Payne with the mule deer foundation and you can go to the mule deer foundation website you can look in our rolling information booklet that comes out in january and it has colleen's contact information in there and you can give her a call or shoot her an email to obtain that raffle tag I want to say it's $20 per chance, no limit on the number of chances that you can you can have. And basically, you get a raffle ticket or you get a number, your name goes in a hat, it's shaken up or, or turned in a, in a bin. And then Colleen in June, I think this year it's going to be around June 14th, and it usually happens in Las Cruces uh, at, the, at the regional office there. But she'll go in and draw a name out of the hat and and uh, see who the lucky winner is and then call that person up so when you win this when you win the raffle you get an authorization and that authorization will allow you to hunt anywhere in the state that's legal public land or private with written permission from september 1 through january 31st so it really gives you you know a four-month hunt window that you can go out and you know take your family out and go search for buck your dreams or just have a you know a good good time good hunt in the state and extend your your opportunity to harvest your desired buck also just just so the folks are aware that authorization if you win that raffle that authorization that you get you you don't have to hunt it it's fully transferable but if you win that you might want to go out and and hunt that tag for yourself because it's a pretty sweet premium tag yeah yeah for sure And, and along those lines of what that allows you to do there is another tag that kind of has that same description right with with the exception of of being non-transferable that's actually in the draw now yeah that's uh our premium statewide deer hunt deer one 700 i think it is it's the very first one listed in the deer section in our rolling information booklet give out one tag um if you draw it, you, if you draw it, you get to hunt that same hunt. You get to hunt September 1st through January 31st anywhere in the state that's legal with any legal firearm, your rifle, or any legal weapon. So your rifle, your bow, muzzleloader, whatever, whatever you desire. And that really just gives you a chance to, again, go out, maybe hunt a different area of the state that you've always wanted to check out but never have. And it's kind of uh, a low pressure way to check it out while having that rifle in your hand. Or you might, you might have a buck that you've seen driving around or hiking around earlier that summer that you would have never had a chance at because you would have never put in for that unit or never drawn that tag that'd give you a chance to go pursue that buck September, October, November, or whenever, you know, all the way through January, uh, same opportunity. It's not fully transferable. It's, it's only you or the person that draws it. Nice. Nice. Still an amazing, amazing opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So you had mentioned in your answer, about hunting both public land and private land. So let's kind of let's kind of talk about that. Let's talk about the private land hunting opportunities in New Mexico and and how that's how that's overseen. Yeah, so um so private land 
is for the majority of the state, we don't restrict the number of tags that are given out on private land. Uh, if, if you know a landowner um, that's going to let you hunt, you can you can purchase a private land tag and go hunt his land with written permission in that unit during the selected hunt date. So you have to you have to conform to the hunt dates like the published hunt. So say. I don't know, I'm just going to throw a number out. Say you want to hunt unit 31, and I don't know the dates this year, but say the hunt in 31 is uh, October 30th to November 3rd. Um, for the public hunt, you could potentially, or you could essentially hunt your your buddy's ranch in unit 31 during that same hunt date, and you can pick that tag up at Walmart and just select the hunt code that coincides with the published hunt that's in the rule book and again just make sure you have written permission that's the majority of the state we do have one area in the northwest around lindreth uh where we currently restrict the number of private land tags that we give out and those are those are given out so we we give landowners or ranchers authorizations prior to the draw and he's able to, he takes that authorization code, or I said authorization, but it's actually a code. He takes that code and he gives it to his designated hunter or the guy that he selects to hunt. That hunter applies for a hunt in that unit. And in order for that application for that unit to be valid, he has to plug in that hunt code. And so that's just our way of restricting the number of tags that are given out in this area. It's a highly coveted area, that Lindreth area. So that's units... 2A, B, and C, 4, and 5A that we restrict those tags for. And it's a migratory herd. We manage it. We co-manage that herd with the Hickoria, uh, Colorado, and the Southern Ute Tribe. It crosses all four jurisdictions. So it's getting harvested in four areas on the way down, and that's our way to to restrict the harvest on private land in that area uh, with those coveted tags. And there's, there's some big bucks up there. It's coveted for a reason. There's, there's been some, some huge bucks taken in that area. All right. So we've, we've, we've kind of talked about the hunting structure. We've talked about surveys and we've talked about different hunting opportunities across the state, but I know you have a lot of other things going on in the deer program. So let's talk about just real quick, some of these other field projects and research studies that you have going on. Let's kind of start with the deer migration study that's taken off here in the in the last few years. Yeah, we started collaring deer in the north central part of the state in 2020 as um, as a as shoot off from the Department of Interior Secretary Order 3362, which uh, highlights the importance of big game migration corridors and winter ranges. And when with that Secretary Order, a lot of funding came through, and so. We obtained some funding to collar deer, elk, and pronghorn in the Chama area and in the unit 50 and 52 area to look at migration routes. And with the deer specifically, we collared around 40 deer in 2020. And then this year we collared another 40-ish deer, uh, so 2021, in the Chama area. And then we also collared some in the Taos area. And by collar, I mean we put GPS collars on them so we can track their movements and see their preferred seasonal ranges and seasonal use routes, uh, their migration corridors. And um, with that, we've obtained some great information. We're, we're finding out where the deer like to go, where they prefer to move through and, and how. And we've also uh, been able to work with NMSU to hire a grad student to look at, analyze this data, first of all, to, to look at these seasonal use areas. And then she's also looking at forage within those specific points in those migration corridors. So why, why are they using this drainage as opposed to that drainage? You know, it's only separated by half mile, maybe. Why do they like this area instead? So she's looking at a habitat component of that to find out why, um, why they're using those areas. So it's a really cool project. You might see some deer running around with some collars on them and some ear tags again in the Taos and the Chama areas. And if that's, if you do see them, that's what it's from. It's just it's just data that we're gathering to to identify these seasonal use areas and seasonal routes. Nice. So some good information coming in future years. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. Well, well, one of the other most visible projects I think in the deer world is is CWD monitoring. In in some areas, you see these 
these CWD check stations around during the deer season. So can you tell us a little bit about CWD in the state and, and this annual monitoring that's done? Yeah, CWD or chronic wasting disease is a, a neurological disease um, that's that affects the cervid world, deer and elk, uh, caribou and moose. Um, and it's misfolded prions. Uh, that's a protein in the uh, neurological system. It's misfolded. It, it creates some... Um, some havoc basically for those animals and it's it's 100 fatal so it's been detected in new mexico as you said first detected in the early 2000s down on white sands and it's since been detected in units 28 and 34 so we currently have it in units 19 28 and 34 we have check stations set up to monitor for the prevalence the presence prevalence and spread of this disease so we have some check stations that are voluntary and around like the Rio Doso area and the Sacramento mountains. We try to set a few up in the eastern part of the state, have one in uh, Unit 2B because that's a migratory herd. Um, and then Unit 19 is mandatory CWD submission unit. Um, so yeah, we set those up throughout the year and then we also collect uh, hunter harvests, samples from hunter harvests where they come into our regional offices and say, hey, I want to get this tested for CWD. We currently get around 300 samples per year. That's not a lot when you think that we harvest 11,000 or 12,000 deer a year and about 14,000 elk. Uh, we, we get about 300 samples. We would like to increase that through hunter submissions, uh, through more folks coming through our check stations. Uh, if you want more information about where our check stations are going to be, you can get a hold of me um, and we can... I can let you know where they're going to be, but they're set up during our, our deer and elk hunts. Uh, so we can just get, catch folks that are coming through. And, and then there's actually some good incentive to want to get your deer or elk tested. Yeah. So aside from knowing if it was positive for chronic wasting disease, and I do want to say it, it's not been known to affect humans. Okay. Um, we, 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 re- we recommend that you don't eat the meat if your animal tests positive for CWD but it hasn't been found to, to pass to humans and, and undoubtedly folks throughout the U.S. eat CWD positive meat every year. And again, it hasn't jumped uh, to this point, but it's still something to be aware of. But what you're getting to is, is the, the main incentive or a, a bigger, more immediate incentive is we have an elk or oryx incentive tag that's, um, that's awarded to hunters uh, or award it, it's set aside for hunters that submit their CWD samples each year, and and what that is, you submit a sample, you get a number that's associated with that sample. At the end of the year, we randomly select from all the submitters a winner of an elk tag um, or an oryx tag, and so these are pretty premium uh, type tags that you can get just by give you a chance to hunt again, I guess, or an extra hunt. Um, just by submitting your sample. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, James, but I think that elk tag is for Via Vidal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a oh, primo it, tag. Yeah, that's a pretty good reason if you're successful to, to have your, your harvest tested. Hey, hey, along those lines, you mentioned the different species that CWD impacts, and you had mentioned moose. So I'm going to go a little off topic here and ask you about moose. So uh, last week, a a couple moose wandered into New Mexico from Colorado, and one of them was shot, and law enforcement is is investigating it. But but there was a lot of talk following that on social media as to whether it was actually legal or not to harvest a moose in New Mexico since there is no season. So as the deer biologist, can can you shed any light on that situation? Man, I would love to be a moose biologist. I think they're such cool animals. <laughs> I've always wanted to work with them. And my my dream is to have a moose hunt. Like that's my one of my bucket list animals to hunt. But to get back to uh to where we're at. Um, <laughs> so so chapter seventeen of our state statute, so a state a state law that's uh says that all family all members of the family cervidae are classified as game animals, so all cervids, and that includes moose. So deer, elk, moose, caribou ranged in here, caribou, uh, they're, they're classified as game animals, and as such, they're protected by the state statute, um, which makes it illegal to take or attempt to take an animal. So 
yes, it, it's not legal to shoot a moose. As a general rule, and one that I think folks should live by, is if you're not sure, don't shoot it. Uh, if you see something that's you think, hey, that's that's interesting. I've never seen it before. I wonder if I can harvest it. Before you pull that trigger, you should probably ask a game warden if you're if you're not sure if you haven't specifically seen in state statute in a rule book or whatever that it is legal to take. But yeah, that's a, a good rule of thumb that I think we should live by. Probably a good way to avoid a ticket. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, speaking of of hunting. I mean, that's, that's probably what a lot of people listening to this are, are deer hunters. So let, let's talk specifically about any tips and tactics that you have for deer hunting or, or locating deer in general here in New Mexico. Yeah, so hunting strategy will be dictated by the terrain and habitat that you hunt or desire to hunt. But in general... Deer hunting is a spot and stock game, um, using a lot of glass, sitting on good vantage points and, and scoping out the terrain just until you see an animal that you want to try to harvest that's in an area that you can make a move on it. So that, that's that's the main probably way to do it. Some folks will hit sit on game trails or sit on water holes, especially in the southern part of the state, but deer don't need to, to drink as frequently as elk do somewhere around three liters 3.1 liters per day is is all that deer will drink and so that they, they may only come there once a day or they may be coming at night and they may not have to hit it again at daylight hours so sitting water can be fruitful in some some instances but it's it's kind of a tough way to go too especially if there's moisture elsewhere and they could obtain the moisture from stuff that they eat or just taking drinks as they you know walk along and find a little puddle so I like to hunt, basically I have zero patience for sitting on a knoll and glassing an area for hours. I just get <laughs> so bored with it. I'm very antsy, I've been told. Um, so my strategy is I typically hike or wander around in areas that I think will hold deer and I'll just move slowly through and just glass openings or areas as I'm walking through, maybe moving between one likely spot to another and and. I don't want to say I don't sit, but after an hour of sitting and glassing, I usually want to go find out what's over that hill that I'm looking at because there's nothing on the front side of it. Nice. So I, I, I tend to burn a lot of uh, boot rubber, but um, but it's still it's still a spot and stock game that I do. It's just a little bit different than just sitting stationary in one spot. You asked earlier when you and I were talking about like calling deer. It's it's a little bit more difficult to call deer than say you would elk. They're just not as vocal or not as loud. They will make some small tending noises to each other when they're chasing and stuff, but it's just not as audible. So that's kind of tough, but uh, some folks will take antlers out in the woods with them and rattle and, and that'll work in some instances uh, by rattling bucks in. But I've, I've done it growing up in West Virginia and Ohio, but I haven't done it since I moved out West. Well, you mentioned growing up in, in, in West Virginia. So a lot of the, I don't know if it's legal in West Virginia, but a lot of the eastern states you can you can bait deer. So is is baiting an option here in New Mexico? No, you can't hunt over bait. It's not legal to hunt game animals over bait in New Mexico. So, kind of as we wrap up, what what advice would you give to a new hunter on deer hunting, or or even folks with with hunting tags for this year? Yeah, um, new hunters, uh, try to find a mentor. Try to find somebody who will take you out. Your learning will be much quicker. Uh, you'll, you'll learn the ropes a lot better quicker. If you don't have a mentor, you know, maybe reach out to some, uh, some of our sportsmen's groups or something to find out if there's somebody that might be able to mentor them or just get, just get tips and tricks. Uh, in general, when folks call me, um, novice or seasoned hunters, I tell them in New Mexico – getting away from roads will greatly improve your chances of of harvesting a deer and that's really good rule of thumb for any any state that you hunt but uh, just getting away from a road it might mean for some folks who are ambitious and want to hike two miles it might mean hiking two miles back in for other folks it might just mean that if you just get if you're looking at a ridge from the road you can't see the backside of it maybe if you just jump to the backside of it or get on top and, and glass the backside of it you'll be surprised at the amount of game you'll find in areas that you can't easily see from the road it's just it's just something i tell folks that it greatly increases their chances that's how i hunt and um 
for me, I found that to be true. So other things to do when you're, when you're hunting is obviously scout. When you're scouting, look for saddles or ridges or other pinch points that deer might use as they move between bedding and feeding areas. And then knowing what they're feeding on in the fall, you know, what, what type of browse they're hitting, uh, kind of doing a little bit of research in the literature to find out what do they use in this area typically. And that'll just help you fine tune what you're looking for when you're looking at a landscape. I mean, you could look out and just see a mountainside and you might just start glassing the mountainside. But if you know the preferred, <laughs> preferred forage, you'll be able to hone in and say, okay, well, if I just start glassing this side of the drainage or this particular part of the hill, I might start finding deer more quickly. Um, and then when you're out hunting and hiking around, just looking for fresh tracks and, and hunting fresh sign, that's kind of what I do is uh, if I see some tracks that are made within the last day or two, I'll, I'll slow up. If I'm not seeing some new sign, not bumping a deer or two as I hike around, uh, I'm usually moving a little quicker through that area. Nice. Nice. Good advice. Well, Oren, I think, uh, I think that's about all the time we have today. Thanks for joining us and telling us all about deer management in New Mexico. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. And uh, thank you all for tuning in and listening today. And be sure and check out our other podcasts and the monthly newsletters and get outside and enjoy all the outdoor opportunities that New Mexico has to offer. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.